Okay, 6.30, so trying to be respectful of your time, would you all pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for being such an awesome God. You're a God of, of power and might, and you created this whole universe. You're also a God of relationship and love, and you created us to be in relationship with you, and to and you gave us the free will to choose to love you or not, and we thank you that even though we are sinners, you sent your son to die for us. And we don't deserve it, but we thank you and we praise you for it. Lord, I thank you so much for this class. Thank you for the opportunity to learn from one another, to look at some challenging passages. And we don't necessarily have all the answers, but help us to try to come away with a deeper understanding, perhaps. Lord, I do praise you for Jesus and for your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, have I ever told you how classes start at the Air Force Academy? Mm -hmm. It's very different than my previous school. Previous school is like, all right, everyone, shut up, sit down. <laughs> the Air Force Academy, I say, you know, Bill, get us started. And so he stands <coughs> up and says, class, 10 hut. They all stand up. Sir, class report's ready to learn. <laughs> okay, then. I'm ready to teach. Let's go. And I, I'd never been called sir so many times. I don't think I've ever been called sir at Rose Home. Taught there 30 years, but how was your weekend? Fine, sir. How was yours? <laughs> so, words of the day. I was thinking of two interesting words. You may know them. One is petrichor. What's petrichor? The smell after a rain, you know, that nice smell that you get? Or apricity. That's the feeling of the warm sun in, on your face in winter. It's like apricity is the... <laughs> Warmth of the sunshine. I say the sun is screaming. Okay, so this is lesson five of God behaving badly. And again, basically I'm going through this book by David Lamb called God Behaving Badly. So that's where the chapters are coming from. I am bringing in other resources. But this is the main thing I'm using. Although I did, you know, I saw my bookshelf. I was looking for various books. And this is another one I read. It's been a, over a year ago. It's called The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It. <laughs> and Peter Innes is an interesting guy. It's very in entertaining. It's very short chapters, well written. But to me, he goes, and again, smart guy. He taught at Harvard, taught at Princeton, taught at Fuller Theological Seminary. But he goes too far, in my opinion. His basic thesis, you know, he, he first of all presents all these issues and challenging and his conclusion is there's no archaeological evidence for the Canaanite conquest so it didn't happen it was just a made-up story later for nationalistic reasons or whatever and to me that's just too too much <laughs> I think it's, it takes such a low view of, of scripture and again there are challenging parts in the Old Testament but just saying it didn't happen to me is not an honest of trying to look at those and you recall, the other guy, Marcion, what was his view? He was a spoiled son of a Greek shipbuilder <laughs> who had billions of dollars and too much time. <laughs> he was a heretic in the second century. And his view was basically, again, we have all these awful things happening in the Old Testament. So the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. They're not the same God. And we don't worship the God of the Old Testament. We have a new God. And so he threw out the whole Old Testament. And so that was another approach people take to this issue, and which I also think is wrong. Okay, so quick review of what we've done in this class so far. We started off with the introduction. And again, you're, I'm not going to reteach all these again, but the basic introduction was this is one of the ways people attack Christianity. They look at Old Testament stories. They look at, especially if you look at atheist arguments and atheist websites, they pull a bunch of things from the Old Testament. How could you worship this God who commits genocide, who kills children, who does this, who does this? And they, but it's very cherry-picking of scriptures. So how do you as a Christian respond to that? 
in a relatively intellectual way, as well as, as well as understanding that this scripture was written a long time ago in a culture that is not ours. So we need to understand there are cultural differences, and trying to understand that helps us interpret it passages that may not make sense to us. Um, so week two was, is God angry or loving? What was our conclusion that week? He gets angry. There's clear examples of him getting angry, but whenever there's an example of getting angry, it's usually for, it's always for a very good reason. And if you look at the majority of passages, that talks about him being loving and patient, and, but there are certainly examples of him being angry. It's often over sin. It's often over injustice. He gets angry. Um, we talked about is God sexist or affirming? This one is not a yes answer. He is not sexist. He is affirming. And so we looked at a lot of scriptures related to women and how in the, I mean, the, the Old Testament law is very affirming to women, especially for that culture. And last week was racist or hospitable. And basic conclusion, and so what did we look at last week? Anyone call? This is a question, as a teacher, one should never ask. <laughs> it's like, if Eddie said, do you remember my sermon from two weeks ago? Like, Was it Jude? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just joking. But anyway, does any remember anything from last week? No, I read the signs. What's that? Noah. Noah and his sons. And how... I wasn't here. I would have <laughs> Part of the problem is the church has been very racist. Especially the church justified slavery using like the story of uh, Noah and Ham and his sons and the curse of Canaan. So we talked about the curse of Canaan and how, again, how Christians, there's, we should not be racist because we're all related to one another. We're all created the bunch of God. And so there's no place for judging another person based on color of the skin or anything like that. And there's no evidence in the scripture of God ever being racist. We also talked about the Canaanite conquest because that is often also used as, well, God is racist, but, you know, never were the Canaanites killed because of their race. It was for other reasons. Okay, so no evidence to support that God is racist, no place for racism in the church, and God welcomes all nations. And we looked at a lot of scriptures last week talking about how we're, they, they were commanded to be hospitable to foreigners. Treat the foreigners the same way you treat Israelites. So there was a lot of really counterculture thing there in terms of how you should treat foreigners. Okay, so I always like to start with the discussion. So what are some incidents in the Bible that would make people conclude God is violent? Flood. Flood. What else? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Samson. Samson? Why is that? The story of Samson means it was violence. Yeah. seemed to be Okay, so Samson committed, but it seems to be condoned by God, or God certainly gave him the strength to do those things. Babylonians? Babylonians? How so? Well, because they took Israel. They took Israel, so that's sort of one of the arguments that God is not racist, but he punished Israel and destroyed Israel, just like he punished the Canaanites. Um, Canaanite conquest is one, a big one. God committed. God ordered genocide. We discussed that last week, and we'll mention it again today. God's anointed killed ten thousand, where God wanted killed a thousand. Okay, there were wars. <laughs> there were wars that the, that we read about in the Bible. What about the Red Sea? Rats. Uh, that would be you know the uh, Egyptian army killed the Red Sea. Sure. Okay, opened up the earth. What's that? So there are definite instances where God directly kills people. You know, there's other instances like Samson where God's not doing the direct killing, but there's sort of a implied. What about Acts? We see in Acts where do people killed in Acts? Ananias and Sapphira are the two. Which is sort of the counterexample, well, we have all this dead in the Old Testament, but nothing, you know, there's some judgment in the New Testament as well. Okay, so one main takeaway that I want you to take away, and we're going to look at some other stories. We're going to look at some of what was mentioned, but not all. So again, this is intended to be, not intended to be 
comprehensive of every difficult story. But just because the Bible contains violence does not mean God is violent. I mean, it was a violent world, there was wars, there was violence going on, that doesn't mean God is characterized by being a violent God. <laughs> okay, so I found this quote. So first of all, Rachel proofreads all my slides, but I always tweak them up until the time I come and see you, <laughs> which drives her crazy. Because if there's ever, if there's a typo, it's a slide she did not look at. And I remember two weeks ago, she in the front row, you didn't see her, but she was like, <laughs> and she was taking notes like, you've got to fix that caption, Phil. What did you do? And so, um, here is, someone want to read this for us? And again, I ask you to read because I, I do struggle reading long passages. Yeah, Kat. If the Old Testament had been marked as a horror story, like a Stephen King novel, we might think differently about it. We applaud King's talent, if not the actions of his characters. Those who read his belief-suspending books can appreciate the literacy value of that genre. We wink as we wince. We could make allowances for the crude writing style of the Old Testament authors if we thought their aim was to entertain by shopping. But the real horror story, the one that made E.T. say he needed to put on gloves before reading it, is that those writers were not pretending, and neither were the readers. Today, anyone who takes the Old Testament seriously and does not wink or wince at the gratuitous splattering of blood is a troubled person. <laughs> Former evangelical pastor Dave Barkley wrote the book God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction, which is a... Richard Dawkins made the same sort of statement. I don't know who made it first. But. So how do you respond to this, this sort of... So I was trying to motivate the class, and part of the motivation is there are people who think this way. <laughs> yes? I would just say any, I mean, one is God, but any history, if it's all written down, is violent. Okay. Anyone else? Well, they're reading the Bible through modern eyes. I think that's a, a key issue. They're reading it through modern eyes, not taking into account the culture at the time, what was happening at the time. And it was a violent world. There was war. And war is, you know, we you talk about World War II and we're describing it. There are bad things that happen during war. Well, even now, I mean, we're kind of shielded from it in the USA, but much of the world is at war right now. That's right. We see that in Israel. see that in other places. Okay. So, again, I, I think this is where the attitude, well, you know, it's, it's just too much. I have to reject God because of what I see in the Old Testament. And I think that's what we're trying to address in some way. Okay, so let's look at some examples that people use. No one mentioned this one, but I think it is one that people use. God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his own son. God commanded filicide. How can you justify this? So Genesis 22, 2, God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Mordai. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. How would you respond to someone said, How could you worship a God who... And again, I learned the difference between infanticide and filicide. Anyone know the difference? Infanticide is a child typically less than one-year-old. Filicide is killing of one of your children. Words, words, words. Aren't they great? Okay. How do you respond? There's more to it. you got to keep reading. Okay. Yeah. So what happens? He doesn't kill him. He provides another sacrifice. Doesn't kill him. God does provide. Anyone else? God stopped it. God did stop it. What's that? We have to ask ourselves, what was the purpose? He was testing. And who is Abraham? He's the father of the whole nation. And so it, it does say God tested Abraham by asking him to do this. It doesn't mean, and so again, I think the bottom line, the point, is, the point was testing Abraham's faith. And even Abraham, though, if you read when he tells his servant, you know, we're going to go up to sacrifice, we'll be coming down later. I don't know if he's just saying that or he actually genuinely believes that he's going to be coming back down with his son later. And even in Hebrews it says, you know, Abraham, with faith, said he could raise his son. So he had faith that he was not going to lose his son through this, but he was going to be faithful to God. 
So God never actually required the sacrifice, which is unlike other religions of the ancient Near East that did have child sacrifice. And so this is almost an anti-child sacrifice story, where God is saying, no, I don't require this. Because we never see any other instances that this is just Abraham. And again, God stopped it, and he did not actually require Abraham to sacrifice himself. Okay, how about Elisha and the mocking boys? The bears. So here's a comic strip that I found. From there, Elisha went to Bethel. He was walking along the road. Some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy. You're ugly. Your head is so shiny. Nobody wants you here, Baldy. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And he said, I curse you harmless young children in the name of the Lord my God. So this is not scripture. This is scripture down here. Uh, then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. So, and again, they just do art, Elijah and the bears. And here's some art trying to illustrate that same story. So what sort of, and let's actually read the passage then, what's that? Some are higher quality art than others. Okay, so here's the actual story. Someone want to read this for us, please. Back here. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Okay, so what is disturbing about this story, about this passage? People making fun of bald people. <laughs> Those of us losing hair have no problem with this story. It's like, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Gangs were alive and well in the Gangs were alive. I mean, 42, 42 kids. Yeah. That makes you think this is not some two little boys running away from their mom and laughing at this, making fun of this kid. Something else was going on here. Other things that disturb you about the story? It, didn't, it, it doesn't say that they died. It says that they were mauled. And, okay, it says they were mauled, so there was clearly some violence going on, but it doesn't say they died, and it probably would have said he killed 42 if they, he had died, if the bear had killed them. It's still a violent story here. I don't think you can deny that. Well, it's, it's disturbing because apparently for making fun of somebody, he rained down fire from heaven. Yeah, that seems beyond what the the fence called for yeah and it also says small boys picture eight, eight, eight to twelve year olds or something like that or Remind six to me. ten year olds you know being six to ten year olds <laughs> okay so a couple issues and we'll look at make some observations on this story first one is niv doesn't use small boys it uses the word boys or youths and we'll talk about the word used and it does have a variety of meanings and then NIV also says mauled, not tore. So there's different ways you can translate some of these words. What's that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. So that, according to the author, and I agree with him, there are primarily three reasons why this story tends to bother people. Elijah was a prophet of God. Shouldn't he have been able to control his temper? It's like, you know. Turn the other cheek. I shouldn't let what little kids say bother me. So that's one particular possible reason. The boys seem to be young and innocent. Some translations say young boys. And so if you read young children or young boys, that makes it more disturbing, in my opinion. God seems to be the primary force behind the attack. So how do you respond to people that have these concerns? And that's what we'll talk about on the next slide. Okay. So. There are two Hebrew words for boys that are used in this passage. One is nar and the other is yellow, so in 23 and 24. And both of them can mean boy or young boy. They can also mean youth or adolescent. 
could even mean older teenager. It depends on the context. It has a variety of meanings. And both of these words were used for Joseph's brother, Benjamin, when he was in his early 20s in Genesis 44, 20 through 22. He uses the term boy twice in there. And so again, that's not necessarily a young person. There's a bit of interpretation by translating it that way. Okay, there are multiple meanings of the word. You always have to look at the context. And it seems, again, we're making some assumptions here. But it seems unreasonable to assume that a large group of very young boys were allowed to leave town unsupervised and follow Elisha through the woods. You know, you sort of imagine this group of 10-year-olds chasing after him. That just doesn't seem right. Um, a gang of teenagers seems more reasonable. So it's very possible that this was not harmless teasing by a group of preschoolers, but taunting by a pack of teens, a gang. Someone mentioned a gang. Um, so, you know, again, this is all, there's some assumptions here. Elijah's life may have been in, in danger. Now, there are stories in the Septuagint that include things like, and they were throwing stones at him. Now, that's not in what we have here, but there are other old documents that refer to that, which would indicate a danger to his life in some way, or at least that was the interpretation of the time, that there was some danger to his life. Uh, yeah? The uh, taunt go up was likely a reference to Elijah's predecessor, Elijah, who went up in the whirlwind, was caught up into heaven. And so maybe that story was well-known, and so they were taunting Elisha to do this. Oh, I hadn't read that. That's go up, Baldy. What is, what is it? Interesting. Um, so here are some points to consider. We, again, need to understand the culture. In our culture, we say sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? We, we teach our children that. Um, but in the rest of the world and throughout history, that wasn't necessarily the case. Think of dueling, right? It's like you get insulted, you throw your gold down, and you shoot at each other. So it was over slights. It was over words. It was over insults. So it was much more serious, and that's, you know, whenever duels happen, but this is much earlier. So things were, names were taken more seriously than we do today. So we have to be careful about interpreting it from the way we do. Yeah. We still live today. There's, there's a term called dissing. <laughs> people have shot people for disrespecting them. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's still very true in pretty much all of Eastern culture, from Middle East all the way over to... Absolutely. Really serious. And so, again understanding the culture that this is a serious offense of making fun of leaders, rulers, elders, anyone is a very serious. So in his culture and many people today, his response would be considered absolutely justified. People were severely punished for insulting leaders, rulers, elders, people of that nature. Um, but before we leave this, yep. I think James also says that uh, uh, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I, I, I think we need to take a lesson from this, though. And, and it's one of anger. And I'll let anger overcome us. And if it didn't have to do with stone throwing or anything, he just got irritated. The fervent prayer of a righteous man still availeth much. Okay. Uh, third point. Uh, we need to look at Elisha whole life we can't look at this one incident what was Elisha characterized by do you remember any other stories from his life saved a woman, saved a woman. yeah so again he healed the sick Naaman he fed the hungry purified poison water prayed for a barren woman who then gave birth raises from the dead prevents a war there's if you look at Elijah's life as a whole this is not a bitter, angry person smiting children, okay? So, the, again, that, you need to look at the totality of his life to try to understand that this was a unique situation, and we don't know exactly what was going on. His life was characterized by miraculous acts of service. Okay, so, a couple other points to consider on this one. Text does not suggest death was the result. Someone already mentioned that. It says they were mauled. It doesn't say they were killed. And it's, again, still violent, but it doesn't say 42 kids were killed. 
I talked about this manuscript from the Septuagint, records that the boys also threw stones. That's not in the Bible, but it was in other do old documents. So what was the main point? God basically protected the life of Elijah in this story. So, and now we're going to make a disclaimer, or a, you know, we're going to talk about these stories, but I'm not going to claim that all of the arguments I make are satisfying. It's like, oh yeah, that answers it, no problem, because I still feel discomfort on some of these stories, to be perfectly honest, okay? And so that's my disclaimer on all of this. I think it was good that they didn't kill them, <clears throat> they could carry this message forward to other generations. Hey, don't make fun of old people. Or, <laughs> or bald people. <laughs> old, bald. old bald people. Okay. Now, we talked about the Canaanite conquest last week. Yes, please. To your point of being protected, so I think it could be also the fact that Bethel is a very special place. Abraham was blessed there. Jacob built an altar. And he says, I am the God of Bethel. Bethel. And so when... A uh, king Ahab or Ahab, Ahaz is around this time, very evil kings, and you have these kids coming out of Bethel, this place that's sacred, you know, special to God, taunting his probably lone prophet almost at the time. It's, it's um, I think, that idea of protection. That's it. The place, I think, has a part of that. that. And the kids may have been reflecting the attitude of the parents and the people in the town. Yeah. Excellent point. I didn't discover that, but I think that's really, really good. Okay, Canaanite conquest. Last week we talked about it in the context of genocide and racism. We're going to just retouch on some of those points again because it is often used in the claim against a violence for God. So here are some of the things we noted last week. Concept of total destroy, the term harem is not necessarily genocide. It's more destroying the culture, destroying <clears throat> the people, if you will, but not necessarily killing the people. And we looked at some passages related to that. Guy may have been using the Israelites to punish the Canaanites for their wicked and violent behavior. If so, God had been really slow to punish them. It had been a long time before they were punished. And I'd say this is a really common explanation, and I think it has a lot of validity. Like I said, some of the authors, other authors I read pushed back on this, but I do think a lot of scriptures talk about how wicked the Canaanites were. Um, Israel was not trying to expand their borders or establish an empire, but they were exiles from Egypt. They were attempting to reestablish their home in the land of their ancestors. Okay, So it was a different sort of war than other wars at the time. And like Mike said, that's not necessarily totally satisfying, but it's an observation. And it's not unusual in the ancient Near East. Military victories typically either killed or enslaved or vanquished people. That was war. In war, people died. Men, women, and children died. Um, and the killing was probably limited and localized, and there was a lot of hyperbole. Last week, we looked at a lot of passages where it said it killed everyone. And then two chapters later, Caleb couldn't drive them all out. And then they killed everyone. And then two chapters later, and they couldn't drive them all out. So there is this hyperbolic language that is used in this sort of ancient Near East war literature. We see this in other cultures as well. They say, we destroyed Israel completely. It's like, okay, we know that's not true, but that's the way it was describing battles at that time. It was a common literary term. Okay, so other aspects of the Canaanite conquest. Primary description used is generally not slaughter, but the term used far more frequently is to drive out. So someone willing to read these two for me, please? Volunteers. And I will set hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hittites, the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay, so drive out is a common way of describing the conquest. 
Here's a couple more. So another reader, please. Yeah, Tim, thank you. Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that you may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to David. Okay, so we the fulfilling of the promise, a lot of driving out here. It also talks about destroy their figure stones, and you recall last week we read that passage, destroy them all, and the very next verse it says, don't have your sons marry their daughters. It's like, okay, if you destroy them all, how can your sons marry their daughters? Doesn't make sense. Destroy the high places, destroy this, destroy this. So it's sort of describing what he means by totally destroyed by destroying all these religious icon icons, the religious elements of their life. You're destroying their culture, if you will. But this is really talking about driving them out. A uh, couple more. Joshua, I can think I can do this one. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will, he, and he without fail, he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So the book of Judges and Joshua, so we see this driving out language a lot. But we also see repeated, they not only didn't slaughter them all, but they didn't actually drive them all out either. I mean, that led to a lot of problems later. But there is this terminology of driving them out. So I think you could ask the question, does it drive out still seem too violent? You know, driving them out. But in Exodus 6.1, God wanted his own people driven out of Egypt. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So that term for driving out is also used for his own people going out of Egypt. Okay, So it's not necessarily killing them all. It's certainly displacing them. Did he have a big bus? <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, so that's... Two examples, a couple examples here. One was the Abraham sacrificing his son, or being asked to sacrifice his son. We've looked at the bears and Elisha. We've looked at Canaanite conquest. You know, how about examples where God specifically is the actor and I'm killing someone? 185,000 Assyrians. 185,000 Assyrians is the one that comes to mind. Aachen. What's that? Aachen. The dude that did the. Uh, the idols or the stuff under after Aiken or Aachen, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Aiken and his family. Mm -hmm. Didn't they fall into the ground, open up, and swallow them? What about the guy that uh, touched the, or grabbed the ark pole or whatever? God was angry. We, we talked about. Who's that? Uzzah. Uzzah, yeah. We talked about that a couple oh, weeks ago. Sorry. Uzzah, Uzzah, Ananias and Sapphira. And again, in that case, we're not told God will kill you, but they uh, Now, clearly, you fell down dead. And there's clearly, an, I'm talking about things where it says the angel of God killed them. But there's lots of examples like this. And if you go to that, that quote I showed you at the beginning of the person that said, you know, anyone who reads the Old Testament and takes it seriously as disturbed or needs mental health guidance or whatever it was. In that same article, he had a table of, you know, event, how many people were killed, why it was stupid. That's not the column he had, but that's basically what all the text was in. And then the scripture. And so he had three pages of things that were, and but part of the problem was it had 42 kids were killed. It's like, okay, we already, you know, they really weren't killed, but they were mauled. And, and so there's issues with the table, but there's a lot. I was just thinking uh, a Balaam and his donkey. If that had been for his donkey, the angel would have killed Balaam. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. This is a one that was already mentioned, 185,000. 
when the Assyrians were about to attack Jerusalem, 2 Kings 19.35, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and when people arose in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. So that's pretty serious. So how can we try to understand this passage? And again, we're not, I, I really don't want to fall into this danger of defending the scripture. I'm just trying to make excuses. I'm just trying to help us understand it. Like I said, sometimes I think we may not have completely satisfactory answers to all of this, but that doesn't mean we can't think about it. So about 20 years earlier, Syria had conquered Israel. At this point, they were attempting to conquer Judah. So God was defending his people in this war, taking a more active role. Assyria was a brutally violent nation. Assyrians text described burning, mutilating, hanging captives, including boys and girls. And again, some of this could have been hyperbole, but they were described as a really, really violent nation. Uh, the Assyrians also mocked God, it says in Scripture, 2 Kings 19.4, It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rapshetkara, whom his master, the king of Assyria, had sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayers for the remnant that is left. Second Kings, by the messengers, you have ridiculed the Lord. So they were not, they were also being disrespectful to God, the Assyrians were. Okay, so again, this was war, and God and the Assyrians weren't all these great people, but God was active in the, in the battle here. Okay, how about the examples, so people like to pick out examples like this, but they don't pick out examples where God prevented people from dying. So again, a longer passage here, someone want to read this for us? Need a volunteer. Thank you. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this enemy with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they had entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and, they, and there they were, inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. So what do we learn from this passage? You always have to kill people? A bloodthirsty God, after blinding, you know, I don't think he would say, don't kill them, make a feast for them, feed them. It's a very different vibe here. Um, but again, clearly he was preventing them from being killed. And it got a positive result. And it got a positive result, for sure. So the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel. This is verse 23. So this is just a section of that longer passage. Which is interesting, in verse 24, it says, Some time has passed, and the king of Aram is attacking again. So there are still issues some time later. And so let's look at that passage. So this is... 6.24 through 7.7, and it starts, I don't have, didn't have room to put the whole thing, but it says, Sometime later, the king of Aram laid siege to Samaria, and there was great famine. This is the famine where you, there's that story of the two women that they say, okay, let's, which child will we eat? And I bet them eat my child, and then she hit her child. It's not fair. It's like, you know, really awful stories in terms of tremendous famine. So that's this famine that they're talking about here. Katie, could you read this for us? Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate, and they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die, and if we stay here, we will die, so let's um, go over to the camp of the Arame Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans, and when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk, and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys, and they left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. 
Okay, and there's more before and after this. This is just sort of a key section of this. And again, what would you say is the main point here? <coughs> main takeaway. God was, people. God was protecting his people. In this case, he didn't kill them. He just ran them off. He scared them away and they ran away. So why didn't he do that before? No idea. I mean, it's sort of hard to second-guess God and what's the best thing to do in any particular situation. But in this case, clearly he didn't kill people. They just ran away. And it stopped the famine and people were <clears throat> Okay, so that's sort of Old Testament. And there are other things we could have talked about, which, again, you know, the flood we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. We didn't talk about some of the other instances. But what about Jesus? So let's go to the New Testament. Yeah. Um, so point going back to the... Um, the Assyrians yep. that, mocked, that mocked God. Oh yes, ridiculed him. And so you know, there's still that somebody could say, so you know, God couldn't hold His temper for somebody, you know, making fun of Him or, or whatever. But you know, the at, at some point you have to say too that uh, God calls us to be. Uh, God calls us to revere Him and His His name, and if uh, if He allows that to go on, then is He is He really upholding the standards that He calls us to uphold? Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point, Tim. Thank you. Any other comments? Yes. Well, Don has always told me that the Assyrians were so evil that it's unmentionable. So. They were the ones who invented crucifixion. Yeah, so they're certainly described as horrible in their own writing as well. They skinned people and covered walls with a natural Yuck. <laughs> Other comments? Also, the early prophecy to Abraham that his descendants would be uh, captives for 400 years and eat, and then afterwards they will come out. And he would judge that nation, and then it says the Iniquity of the Amorites was had not yet reached their fulfillment or whatever. Measure. So yeah. the, these people were so evil and so corrupt that it was time to, you know, for God to come in and cleanse. Okay. The nation. And we certainly see God doing that in the we Old see Testament. It in modern history, you know, Germany and the Nazis. Surely you wouldn't say our. Uh, the allies were evil because they wanted right. to destroy Germany. Yep. Mike? Uh, when it comes to the standards that God sets for us versus what he does, um, I can't remember if it's the Romans or Corinthians that comes to mind where Paul says, Paul, Paul kind of talks about that a little bit, and then he says, who are you to talk back to God? So... I know it's not the best argument. No, I think that, but it's it's true. I mean, we're not God, and so we can't, and we can't understand all of His motives. I mean, it's not our job to make excuses for Him. But I think sometimes there are other instant parts of a story we can understand that helps explain things. But ultimately, you're right. Okay, how about Jesus? Uh, he said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Verses in John, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world will you, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. How do you reconcile these? I think it's obvious that he's... In John, in those verses in John, he's talking to people that accept him. Okay. To where he's saying in Matthew, there's going to be two teams, those who accept me and those who do not. Okay. Other comments, observations? Yes. Military type peace versus inner peace. Military type peace versus, versus the inner peace. Your heart. You mentioned your heart in John. Yep. Like an so clearly the last two is talking about believers. I mean, this is the part of the upper room discourse. He's talking to his apostles, disciples here. But I think it applies to us as well. The first one, what is he talking about? I mean, I didn't share the whole passage, but anyone? He's talking about people that are 
groups, families, what have you, that don't believe, then they're not going to believe to the point where they're going to be against each other. Well, and I think that also, I think that's part of it. I think it also could be when you come to be my disciple, that's going to cause problems with your family. There's mm -hmm. going to be division. There's going to be conflict, which is absolutely what happens. So there's going to be a lack of peace when someone becomes a Christian and they have to turn away from their family. That causes conflict. What is a sword, though? Yes. That's I mean, a, I have my own idea, but I'd be curious to know what you think. I'm interested in the class. What do you think? I think the sword is his word, and I think it is his commands. Yep. It would appear to me that, that the, when he says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, that's, it's his fight. Uh, the, the fight, he won the fight. And that's why peace was uh, available to, the, to, to Christians and to other people. There was a war going on in heaven at this time. We may not think much about it, but Satan was not happy. Uh, God was fulfilling his, he, he was coming at Satan and Satan was coming at him. And Jesus knew about a, a battle that was way beyond anything we experienced. And he did win that war. Mm -hmm. And uh, we received the benefit of his fighting that war, that, that war, and that's how I would think of the sword, you know, that he's wielding the sword so we don't have to. And I think a sword is an image of a war. I don't think he's saying, you know, I've come to, but a sword, let's all gather arms and fight Rome. That's clearly not what he's talking about. But I do think it's an image of... I believe the sword is actually an instrument of division. Yep. That he, he, in the context of the whole thing, he's talking about the division that's going to happen between family members. And so it's putting the sword, the figurative sword, I don't think he meant the literal sword, the figurative sword between them. Um, and um, you know, that's very true. I mean, look what happened to the early Christians. They did have their families were against them at the time. He's just telling them what the future is going to be like. Well, when I became a Christian, there was not peace in my family. There was conflict. There was how could you, you know, why did you need to be baptized? You were baptized as a baby. It's like a sense that I was rejecting everything that they taught me growing up, and therefore I was rejecting them. There was definitely conflict in families as a result, yeah. Um, when the uh, Iranian crisis happened during the years of Carter. Um, there was a group of, of believers in Seattle that went to the Washington University to to try to convert, to convert actually, they were successful, to convert Iranians. And the Iranians then were being forced to go back to Iran. And uh, these people, uh, they were friends of mine, so I know who they are and everything. They, they stood in front, of basically, of the government and said, no, because if these people go back, they will be killed, you know, because they had become Christians. And so there are, and we had several people that um, we converted up there that um, they, like you and your family, um, the family rejected them and uh, they still decide to fall apart. Which is really impressive, because I studied with a, when I was at Princeton, I studied with a Muslim student, and he was so receptive and open, and he believed Jesus was the Son of God, and he believed he was a sinner, but no, he couldn't become a Christian, because it would mean rejecting his family. It would mean, and he just could not take that step. He, he just couldn't. And it just impresses me when you hear people who are willing to, because, you know, mine was very minor compared to the rejection or danger he could have been in had he decided, but he did not. Okay, we have a few more slides. One more comment. The hostility in the sword, uh, 
was not in the hands of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, it was against the Prince of Peace. Mm -hmm. And the last week in the life of Jesus was anything but peace. And Paul says the Roman soldier didn't bear the sword in vain. So that was the sword and the conflict was, and Isaiah says uh, that he was, uh, he was bruised, he was, uh, the hostility of the nations was against Jesus. So again, I think that bring a sword could mean a, a number of different things, and everything people said I think is valid. The context, I think it is division in families, is a large part of that particular part, but obviously it's broader than that from what people have said, and I agree with that. Okay, bottom line. God's willing to severely punish individuals. He uses violence. Even nations, because of sin, protectively promote peace. So any, so I do have a, actually, let me go on. But I have another what would you say video, because I've discovered them recently, and I sort of like them. I'll, this is a lot of reviews. So some of the stuff we talked about last week and some this week, but I would... See if it plays. And someone says, if God is so good, how could he command genocide in the Old Testament? What would you say? In Old Testament passages, such as Deuteronomy 7, God commands the Israelites not only to drive out the people who lived in the land of Canaan, known as the Canaanites, but also to take over their land and destroy them all. If God is so good, how could he command his people to do such a thing? The next time you're in a conversation and that question comes up, here are the three things to remember. Number one, God's command for Israel to drive out the Canaanites was not race-based, but behavior-based, as the Canaanites engaged in acts that would be considered criminal in civilized societies. In Canaanite culture, horrific acts such as infant sacrifice, ritual sex, bestiality and incest were not only legal, but common. This behavior had been going on for centuries and was integral to the worship of their idols. These acts of cruel injustice had God's attention because God is just. He cares about the victims of injustice. At the same time, God's judgment wasn't a spur of the moment decision. For centuries, God had waited patiently for the Canaanites to repent. In other Old Testament passages, God demonstrates that he desires mercy over judgment and is always willing to relent from judgment if the people are willing to repent. In fact, God had a reputation for showing mercy, not only to Israel, but also toward Israel's enemies. For example, you might remember that Jonah didn't want to deliver God's warning to the Ninevites, and he even tried to run away from the job. Why? Because he knew God would show mercy if they repented. Apparently, Jonah knew that God's justice always goes hand in hand with his compassion and mercy. Number two, God is willing to work with people where they are, not where they ought to be. He works within messy human cultures to move them towards redemption. When the Canaanites refused to repent, God finally brought judgment in a language they would understand, the language of war. In fact, war was an everyday part of life in the ancient Near East. All nations at that time depended on war for survival or subjugated themselves to another nation for military protection. While it's hard for us to imagine a world where war is an everyday norm, God is always working within all cultures, no matter what their norm is. Just as we adapt our own behavior and language when we are in a different culture or country, the language of the ancient Near East was violence and war. And a victory by the Israelites, a much smaller and weaker nation, the Canaanites, suggested divine intervention. It's also important to note that God instituted rules and limits to war that were against the norms of the time. He limited the Israelites to warfare only within specific circumstances and timeframes, or for specific purposes. God also limited who could fight exempting those who had recently bought a house or a vineyard or were engaged to be married and even those who were just faint-hearted there were even rules against needlessly destroying the nearby trees god works with people where they are not where they ought to be and when he accommodates certain inferior conditions of a culture it is to move people in a redemptive direction in the case of the canaanites even beyond using israel to stop their violence and evil 
God was working to accomplish a larger plan, his mission to bring redemption to the entire cosmos. Even as he was judging the Canaanites, a seriously corrupting and evil force in the world, he was orchestrating the story of redemption, securing the land for Israel in which the Messiah for all nations would appear. Number three, the Old Testament's mention of many Canaanite survivors shows that its total kill language is simply ancient Near Eastern exaggeration or hyperbole. Whenever we read ancient literature, we should try to understand the context in which it was written, including what kind of literature it is and the language devices that were normal for that time. If I tell you my suitcase weighs a ton, you know that I mean it's heavy, not that it literally weighs 2,000 pounds. If I say I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, you would know that, at least in Western culture, I don't literally mean I will eat a horse, just that I'm very hungry. There are common hyperbolic expressions in every culture. In the culture of the ancient Near East, there were stock hyperbolic phrases about warfare. Sweeping language with utterly destroyed bravado was common in ancient Near Eastern war texts. In that literature, victories were often described in terms of total conquest, complete annihilation, and leaving no survivors. One Moabite king wrote of his victory over Israel by saying, Israel is no more. Both his ancient Near Eastern readers and readers today understand this was hyperbole and not literally true. The total kill language in the Old Testament command was closely followed by directions to not intermarry with the Canaanites, the ones who were supposedly to be wiped out. In fact, the biblical language of the Canaanite destruction is identical to that of Judah's destruction in the Babylonian exile, which clearly did not mean utter annihilation or genocide. In both cases, people from these nations turned to God and were accepted into Israel. God even made Rahab, one of the Canaanite women who turned to God, one of the great-great-great-great-grandmothers of Jesus. All this indicates that to some degree, the language used in the Old Testament about utterly destroying the Canaanites was hyperbolic. Passages dealing with God's command to drive out the Canaanites from the land are difficult passages to read, and we have to be honest with those difficulties and resist offering trite answers. But the first step to understanding what happened and why is to evaluate the context of the biblical narrative and the ancient Near Eastern culture. So the next time you're in a conversation and someone objects to genocide in the Old Testament, remember these three things. Number one. God's command for Israel to drive out the Canaanites was not race-based, but behavior-based, as the Canaanites engaged in acts that would be considered criminal in civilized societies. Number two, God is willing to work with people where they are, not where they ought to be. He works within messy human cultures to move them towards redemption. Number three, the Old Testament's mention of many Canaanite survivors shows that its total kill language is simply ancient Near Eastern exaggeration or hyperbole. So what would you say? I'm Brooke McIntyre. Okay, I thought it was a good video, so I thought I'd share it with you. And it summarized a number of things we talked about before. Come on. Testament. Okay, so we are about out of time next week. Oh, so close. The topic is, is God legalistic or gracious? Then God rigid or flexible? And week eight, I don't have a topic yet. So I would like you to think about what would you like me to discuss that last week? I could review. I could, if there's some other pressing thing people want me to discuss or research, let me know next week. So think about it. So I will give you one thought question for God legalistic and gracious. Where does that complaint come from? Well, people look at the Old Testament law. They say, okay, you can't eat shellfish. You can't mix linen and cotton. What the is going on with that? You can't do this. You can't do that. Why are all these, these picky laws and God's just picky? Why would God do that? So here's my, remember at the very first week I said, one of my goals for this class is to give you the opportunity to practice that principle of being unoffended. <laughs> so next week is the week we will work on that. And I'll start off by asking the following question. What part of the Old Testament law 
including the Ten Commandments, is applicable to us today? And my answer is none of it, including the Ten Commandments. Go and be unoffended. <laughs> we'll discuss that more next week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.